truth, honor, loyalty, character. Welcome to the Long Green Line podcast. This is Maddie Arnold, and I am very excited today because I have my producing partner on the film, Brady Hollingren, here with me to talk about the movie. Brady, how are you doing? I'm doing great and excited to be here. So Brady and I have a long, long history together. We met in our third grade class at Edison School in Elmhurst, Illinois. And we continued on that path into the same middle school, the same high school, and then went separate ways for a few years after college, and then we reunited in Los Angeles. So Brady, Tell us about your history, especially with the coach. Sure. You know, I grew up, of course, seeing Mr. Newton all the time. I have an older brother, and also my dad went to York High School as well. My dad was a football player, but he had him as a teacher, he, you know, gym teacher and a teacher. So he knew Mr. Newton. And then my brother, he's four years older than I am. Then he went to York High School. He ran track, so he didn't do cross country, but he did track, uh, long jump, triple jump, high jump. Mr. Newton was coaching those sports, which when I was in high school and did track, I did long jump and triple jump. So Mr. Newton, when I was in track, he was also my coach, but I also ran cross country all four years. So I had the exposure before going to high school with my brother, you know, being coached by Mr. Newton. I also ran cross country and track in middle school at Sandberg Middle School. And so that kind of got me going. And I also played basketball in middle school and I was getting ready to go play basketball at high school, you know, at York High School as well. And all of a sudden I decided that I wanted to do cross country and I wanted to do indoor track. And those all kind of got in the way of basketball. So indoor track was like kind of a half winter sport? Yeah, half winter sport. So that interfered with basketball. And of course, in high school, you can really only do one sport. But unbeknownst to Mr. Newton, I did continue playing basketball in church league. (laughs) So I played basketball. Yeah, so I played church basketball for all four years as well, you know, on the weekends and practiced after cross country, stuff like that. So yeah. He's definitely shaped my entire life. I mean, four years of running cross country and track, you know, and I ran all the summer programs as well. So I literally was with Mr. Newton pretty much year round. So I know the answer to this since we graduated in the same year at high school. How many state titles did you win? All four of them. And our senior year, we won number five in a row. Five in a row. Yeah. Meaning our eighth grade year of school that they also won yes okay yep so yeah we won all every single year which was a dynasty yeah and so we didn't really know a losing york cross-country team that was sort of our reality and i went down state as we call it every single year just to watch which is you know the spectator experience at downstate is is you know just as it's amazing the school hires like six or seven school buses and they bring a bunch of kids down Saturday morning. They also have a lot of us that would go down Friday night, stay at a hotel, uh, and then get up early and go in, in Peoria. Yeah, and that's exactly what I did. You know, and the cheerleaders come, the whole band comes, and, you know, I was, you know, in the middle of the pack. I probably was, you know, around the 20 or 25, you know, in that range of runners, which sadly, if I ran for another team, I probably would have been in the top five. You know? But York is such a deep team that you've got 20, 30 guys that are pretty amazing. But I was injury prone, there's no doubt. So I did blow out my knee, I blew out my hip, 
I got a stress fracture in my lower back while I was running indoor track and things like that because the indoor track at York was basically a terrible basement and you're running almost a 90 degree turn. So, you know, I had quite a few injuries, so I wasn't really always able to be at my top of the game. So that kind of cut some of my career short. But yeah, I went down there, same, go down the night before, have a lot of fun, be on the, you know, be on the course, cheering everybody on. It was, you know, quite an experience. And every year we're like, we're going to win. And we dominated. And so I'm going to jump ahead to the movie and then we'll go back to a couple of the at school moments. I remember we reconnected somewhere in like a Hollywood party. There was a friend, a mutual friend was in town and we went out together and I had a bunch of footage of a a short documentary that I had filmed in Minnesota about a woman who was HIV positive. And I shot a bunch of stuff with her and tell us what you were doing because you were in the title space then and then you were looking to get into editing and I'm like, well, if you're looking to get in, I got this footage and we can make a movie. So talk about your titles and then let's get into your editing. Sure. Yeah. Like when I went to, of course, Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, I went to film school there. I got my degree in production and then I had a couple internships set up. That was like, I was praying to God that like one of those would give me a job. So I went out here, I I graduated, packed up my bags, and within two weeks, I was out here. So I started, got hired on a job with a company doing titles and opticals on 35 millimeter film, which basically I was using an animation stand, which most people don't know what that is, but that is what Disney used to do all of their, you know, animated films from Snow White and on. So I shot title assets that go on the front of the film all of the credits. And then I did all of the end credits. I had my own processing machine that I processed the film. So that was my first job was working in physical 35 millimeter work. Right around when we met, the film industry, meaning 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, pretty much imploded. And the digital age started. So the timeline was tough, but I think right when we met, I, I was about to get laid off or I got laid off right around that time. The company I was with went under. And I, at that same time, Final Cut 1, I think, came out in like 2001 or something like that. Not cheap, so I was able to get a bootleg copy, and I started learning editing on my own. Well, we didn't have YouTube, didn't have those types of training things, so I literally read books and went through them learning the program. And... I always intended to come out to LA to be a film editor. When I was at Southern, cutting on you know 16 millimeter on a flatbed, like I started really falling in love with editing, and that was my true direction. So I came out here, started learning Final Cut. We ran into each other, and yeah, you were like, "Hey, I've got this this project I'm working on, and got all this footage. How about we see what we can do with it, and let's do a short." So that's kind of how we reconnected with one of our friends from high school. And then we started working on that. We were kind of really innovative at the time because I, I was using digital video, not just video, but digital video, yes. which was like better. Yes. And so I had a bunch of footage that because I was working at a school in Chicago and then I got hired by a school out here and they moved me out, but I still had all the footage and I still was like, I don't know how to edit. Yeah, I have footage. Yeah. And you were like, I know how to edit. And I had Final Cut. I was like, oh, let's make this together. Yeah. And what I OK. And so I remember we were talking about this before. I was living in Brentwood and you were living way out in like Tahunga or something. Yeah. 
after I got laid off, I left Hollywood because I'm like, well, I can't afford Hollywood. And I was living up in Sunland, which is a hike, definitely. And so I showed my students this great thing with Todd Phillips from The Joker. And he was talking about the opening title sequence and how they, they shot it optically on celluloid. Yeah. And that's what I was doing in my first job. And exact same thing. But to try to communicate that to this generation's student was just the hardest thing I've ever had to do. So that I kind of just not easy to explain without what pictures opticals and, and how you combined multiple images on 35 millimeter is not easy to explain to people that really grew up in the digital world. Because you're just like, can't you just do like a multiple layer Photoshop file and then yeah, it would just, be done? Just type the words in, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, I actually had to print them, laser print them out. I actually had to cut them out, put them on animation bond with hot wax, and I had hot wax the paper and roll it down on a light table with a grid, a aspect ratio grid. And then I would literally go click one frame, click two frames. And if I had a moving title, I would click one frame, move the title a tiny bit, click again, move the title, just like stop motion animation. Amazing. And then you'd get that, you know, you'd get film, you get the titles that were see-through and they'd burn them onto the screen, so, you know, onto the backgrounds in so, the optical printer. There, there's going to be a very clear through line of technology. And it's this era that I like to call the last days of analog. Yes. And so each of our projects that we've collaborated on saw different growing pains of technology so with elizabeth's project that's the film the the short film we called it outside of the box because in one of her interviews she had said that she's always you know being hiv positive has taught her to think outside of the box and i remember i was working on a laptop so you were living in sunland and you would come over at night and we would put like four hours in maybe order dinner yep and we would sit in the living room and mm -hmm. we thought we were real cool because we were able to connect the you would bring your entire box over so yep. the entire like i had a macbook big, g4 well, maybe. yeah i had a big mac pro yeah and i no, think no 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 not a mac pro that would well it was yet. the g4 that's g4. right yeah. g4 so it was, it was quote, unquote, quote unquote pre-mac pro but yeah. that was the tower so we had a g4 tower that i lit which I mean, it had to have weighed like 30, 40 pounds or something. Yeah. And I put that in my car and I'd truck down here and yeah, and we'd so, start working. So it was great. You didn't have to bring a monitor and we would plug the computer straight into the television. Yep. And it was the best thing that I was like, I've got a video card, man. I've got an IO card. I've got an IO card in the computer. We can tap it right into the TV. And I knew <laughs> how to do Photoshop and all the still graphic design stuff. I had been doing graphic design for years at that point. And so I was able to make all the titles and the graphics and everything in Photoshop. And I don't even, I think I would put it on a USB drive, hand it over to you. You would import it. And then we had a little bit of a workflow going like that. Yes. And I think we were on USB 2 and like firewire 400 like that was yeah, fast it, firewire 400 was i think when that came out we were just like holy cow this is amazing it's so fast yeah <laughs> so yeah so when we started we were in firewire 400 and so technology has always sort of we've been kind of on the back of the wave but just before the wave really crested we mm -hmm. were still right before that yeah so we made that film and i remember we were sitting finishing that film in that living room scenario and we were like, what else could we do? Who's an interesting character? We need somebody that's like inspiring and motivational and like somebody that like can communicate a lot about humanity and who could, do we know anyone? And then who do we land on? Mr. Newton. It was there the whole time. Yep. 
And I remember being in, I think it was second grade, maybe even before you came to Edison, Jason McNally. Do you remember him? Oh, I, yeah, I do. I grew up with Jason as well. We played basketball together in church. So his older brothers ran for Newton. And I remember that summer, I don't know if they let him run with like the Mighty Mites or he was yeah. the Mighty Might, but he came back that summer talking about his brothers and Mr. Newton and this guy, Sebastian Coe, who he had met all summer. And Sebastian Coe turned out to be an Olympic gold and silver medalist in Los Angeles who came to Elmhurst, Illinois and ran for three weeks before the games. He was kind of like running away from the press in England. They were like really on down his throat. He needed a break. His father was his coach. His father called Newton, said, "Oh, I might can my kid come come run with you." And he, you know he wanted to get used to the time zone. He wanted to get used to everything else. And so we heard all about this Newton from our smallest smallest days. Yep, for the LA LA Olympics. Yeah. And so and at he that hit, and he hit out and and, <laughs> and at that point, like my dad was really close with Newton. My father had always loved coaches athletes and coaches but especially coaches it was kind of a chicago thing you know with mike ditka and phil jackson all mm -hmm. these big coaches were like establishments in chicago and newton was of course one of them and my grandfather had been a referee in the early days of the aba and then he became a referee for the harlem globetrotters so there was always this through line of these old sports guys that would always kind of come in and so we were able to ask Mr. Newton if he'd be open to it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to be out there in California. And uh, I'm, gonna do, I'm speaking at one of these conferences. So why don't you just come meet me and we'll do, we'll do, the, we'll do the documentary. So it's 2004, I believe. Yeah, I want to say early 2004 or late 2003. I think 2003 is when we started really thinking about it. Yeah. And then maybe at the end of the year or early 2004, we were like, okay, let's start shooting footage. And then we're like... How do we get well, what camera? How do we get do this? <laughs> you know? And so we started shooting. We went down to Orange County and we yep. filmed the first two interviews with Newton. And we've released one of those. So if you're listening to the podcast, the, one of the bonus episodes already is the first part of the Newton interview. It's incredible. And, if you know, he's at his peak. He yes. really is totally sharp, totally everything in that interview. And um, I remember that pretty vividly. Yeah, we went to the little conference rooms that they had at the hotel. It was one yeah. of those hotels, and they had like all different sports and all different coaches yes. and all these different high school sport merchandise Merchan sales. Yeah, like merchandise you need a sales. net for your soccer goal, all those things that you could use for your athletic department. And we also interviewed, I think, Jim Bush. Yes, we did. So Jim Bush was the former head coach at UCLA of track. Yeah. Amazing guy. And I think Amazing. they won a few national titles, but he's he was a great guy. And so... So what we did is we took those interviews, and then in the documentary world, you make what's called a sample tape. I think we still call them sample tapes, even though, or now we call them sizzles. But a sample tape is was the old-fashioned yep. name for a sizzle. And a sample tape was basically two to six minutes of what your movie's going to be on a VHS tape that you mailed to production companies, and they would say yes or no. So we took those two interviews of Newton... And then the one interview of Jim Bush and maybe a few others. We cut a very short, like, 90-second to two-minute sample. Yep. And there was a lot of Photoshop and bad Photoshop, I'll take credit for that, <laughs> of the few photos that we did have access to. So we had a couple act photos. We scanned them in. Yep. And we did a little bit of a thing to get, get it hyped up. And I think the next event was in the spring. It was Newton's 70 fifth birthday party yeah yep 
So in Elmhurst, they threw a big birthday party for Newton, and they rented out a banquet hall on North Avenue right there. Yes. I think it was the corner of 83 and North Avenue, or somewhere very close to that. And they gave us the bridal room. Yep. And we set up a little interview suite, and we encouraged all of these alums to come in, sit down, and give us their three minutes. And we had like four or five set questions. Everybody answered the same question, and... I think we even presented that sizzle at that event. Yeah, we screened it, right? Yeah, we screened it there. We kind of got everybody interested. And it was a lot of people were there. I mean, it was packed. Yeah, it was a full banquet. It was banquet. packed. A lot of alumni. And so we filmed all that. I think we even filmed Newton's speech that day. I think we did. I think I, we filmed him. We filmed like almost everybody doing talks and all that stuff. Yeah, like we, I think we shot like as much as we could because we didn't have a whole lot at that point you know, with other people. So yeah, then we just kind of crank through different alumni and they're doing all these interviews. And we literally thought we could make a movie out of just that. Yeah. <laughs> people listening, you can't. No. You need to no. do way more. But it was a great experience because we started making connections with a lot of people. Yeah. And we started to kind of flesh out people's stories and ideas and trying to kind of figure out like, where do we go with this? And we had all kinds of amazing stories and people's experience with Mr. Newton, you know, while they were in high school and outside of high school. So that was like us trying to figure out our footing. Yeah. And I think we, I think the mayor of Elmhurst was, was an, an alum. Yeah, I think so. And he yeah. sat down and then there was a couple other guys like doctors, lawyers, yes. um, all these successful people. And so we knew that success was uh, going to be a theme. There's something about success. What what does it take to be successful? And we thought it meant you get a good job. But I think after really going back, we learned it's not, that's not no, the No, it wasn't that. I mean, not at all. So we screened our, our sample there. I think we printed up like 20 posters. And it was like, do you have stories about Mr. Newton here? And we put, we hung them up all over Elmhurst in like little storefront windows. Yeah. I don't know if it generated too much traction Yeah, because we did have a website. I think the website had like a form that could e would just email us. Yeah, something like that. And I, yeah, if I remember, we didn't get a lot of traction. I think people were like, well, what is this? Or they were leery about it or something. I think it was, yeah. And so we wanted to raise money. And so I think that was always the thought. We're like, maybe there's like a really successful alum who has a lot of money and they would, they'll help us fund this thing. Yeah. We never met that person. No, no. Because we were we thinking. We thought we almost <laughs> did, but we never yeah, closed like, any we deals. Got, we got real close to somebody that was almost going to happen, but didn't. But that's, but we were thinking we're going to have to travel and go and do interviews with all kinds of different alumni and try to flesh out this story because we hadn't really thought of launching like, okay, let's go shoot the season. It was more of, let's do all these interviews. Let's try to find the real core story that we're trying to find and what resonates with an audience from all these interviews. Yeah. Yeah. So that must have been like in the spring. And then we kind of sat on things. And I remember it being like pretty last minute almost. It was. The first week of August. Yeah. I think and we're just kind of like, what do we do? What do we do? And then we're like... The I think this is it. We got to just go. I think there was one moment I called you up and I was like, Brady, I think we need to film the season. Yeah. I'm like, where, how, how flexible are you right now? Yep. And you're like, well, you're like, we should shoot the season. And we were looking at the season of all the runners and going, yeah, I think we have to. And this could be something good. And it was one of those, like, what do we do? And I was like, well, I was in between jobs. I think I was on like a month to month lease. And I was like, 
well, I'll go. And I was like, I'll just put every, I put all my entire apartment in storage. And, you know, both of our parents were all still living in Elmhurst. We still had a lot of connections there because it was, you know, recently, you know, really recently after college is 2004. So, yeah, I packed up and I was like, all right, let's do it. You and know. it was like a real, it takes a village kind of moment because you moved back to your parents' house yep. and you were like living in your old bedroom. Yep, I sure was. And then my dad gave you like a part-time yep. job. That like it was a godsend. Like I worked for your dad, which, you know, wonderful man. And he, that was the most amazing thing he could do is to give me a job because the fact is you and I, we're just scraping by as it was. It's not like we had any big jobs. And I was in between work. And we had almost landed financing and we are very close we're like oh we got financing this is great okay i'm gonna pack up let's go we're gonna do this and then that fell through and then your dad was like well i've got i've got a spot that you can work at and i was like this is amazing so yeah i would work there during the day and they would you know schedule it so i could leave early enough and go to the practice every day and i was you know going to practice six days a week yeah so the york program at that time had two shifts so newton would there was like i think seventh period would get out and yep. they, the athletes could get out early because they didn't have to take pe so the varsity athletes did and so they would start at 215 and he would run first shift 215 they give them a speech yep. until about 245 and send them out on their way and then the second shift comes in that's all the ninth graders and the the, uh, the full yep. full day of school kids and they would start, I think, about 320. Yeah, something like that, yeah. And just another little bit more about how Newton structured everything. He would have a thought for the day, and he would have like a specific speech or a talk that he would give. And it was kind of like he warmed it up with the first shift, which yep. was a smaller audience. Mm-hmm. And then by the second shift, he had all his lines memorized, and he, he was on yeah, fire. Yeah, he got it all down. And that's when he was like firing up the young kids. Yeah. You know, because the first shift was, you know, they're all seniors or juniors. And, and when I ran, I, I, same thing. I was on the first shift. Like, I was like, I'm getting out of gym. (laughs) It's like, I'll go, I want to get out early and go to the first shift. And, and yeah, he'd kind of get the older guys, you know, the junior seniors kind of fired up for practice and get them rolling. And then he had his whole thing down and he'd just really roll with the younger kids to get them rolling. Yeah. So what did that feel like for you to go back to those meetings and not only get the, go back to those meetings just a meeting, but to get the double dose every day. And we do know that if you look, look at all the documents, he gives almost the same talk at every meeting, like whatever the number of the meeting is as a countdown to state. Yeah, You know, if you're 50, 50 practices out of, from state, he's going to tell you this story and this story. So how did that feel to revisit? I'll say it was pretty trippy when I went back because it's like I was pretty much almost like stepping back into when I was a runner there. And it it was amazing because it's like you got to be back in that amazing environment with someone that, you know, hands down shaped my life. And just like he said, you know, he's, he turns boys into men and, you know, he definitely did that with me and being there every day, hearing his inspirational talks and, you know, seeing the progression of building up to all, all the different meets just like I felt like I was back on the team. And Mr. Newton, he brought me back into the fold like I was back on the team, you know? And even when I was on the team, halfway through the senior year, I blew my knee out. So my season was over and I became a manager. And he literally every day would give me his keys to his car 
and I'd go fill up his gas. So like, and, and in high school, I'll never forget, you know, he'd pull out his wallet, not a wallet. He'd pull out a wad of money, you know, and he'd be like, oh, uh, I don't have any small bills. Just use my credit card and just scribble. So I would, literally would take his credit card sometimes, get his car gassed up. I would go get um, cards for his wife. I'd go get different things like that or chocolates. So I like I had the running experience. And then, you know, the second half of my senior year of cross country, I had the experience of being a manager, which was you almost got in behind the curtains a little bit. So when I went back to shoot, I sort of felt like I was back in that spot of kind of behind the curtains with Mr. Newton and Charlie and all of the managers and seeing, you know, what they did and all of the team and just listening every day. It was, it was really amazing. I mean, it, it hit me when I got back there. Yeah. And it was no small feat. And I think Charlie Kern spoke about this a bit that, you know, he, not only did he find everything that would make an athlete excel or one of the runners excel, but he knew exactly how to tap each manager to yes. get their skill set just right. Like Kurt Rubin is a great example. Yes. And he called him, what was his nickname? Curtis. Curtis, yes. Curtis. So he called him Curtis, and Newton was the only person that could call Kurt Rubin Curtis. Yes. And Curtis was a big, he was big into like video cameras and anything in that sort of AV realm, he delegated to Kurt. And that was the brilliant part about Mr. Newton is that he could look at each kid and figure out how do they fit? What are the skills that they have? You know, and he can adapt to each kid's sensibilities as well. And just like, you know, I said, the managers, like each one of them had their role. And without that role, it was difficult to do everything, you know? And like I said, when I was a manager, he knew I'm a senior. (laughs) I blew my knee out. So that's why he was, I was literally the only one he allowed to touch his car, <laughs> you know? but he knew that he's like, you're responsible. I know you've been running with me four years. You blew your knee out. It happens, you know, and I hate to say this, but I think I'm probably the only person in history that was late to practice twice in one day and technically was kicked off the team, <laughs> but I decided to be a manager because I blew my knee out. Mm-hmm. So I kind of did that on purpose just as, well... You know, Mr. Newton, I'll be your manager. But he looked at me and goes, well, you know, hey, I know you're responsible, so you're going to be able to do that for me. Now, this guy can do numbers. He's doing, he's writing all the numbers. This guy's doing the other stuff or this or that, you know. And when I was back shooting, all of those managers had their role. And he knew exactly what they were good at and how he could kind of utilize them. And also, you know, make them part of the team. The managers were part of the team as well. Just as important. And that being said, like, you know, it truly took a village to make this film happen. Yes. And so one of the things that we we asked Mr. Newton for was, are there any any of the managers that want to learn about filmmaking? And turns out there were two of them. Yes. And so he assigned those two guys, Matt and Eddie, to be our PAs, our production assistants. And so you were working mostly with those guys. And anytime you needed any cables wrangled or tripods moved, yep. those were your guys. Yes. And they were a godsend. And so we had a little shorthand. We basically shot every single meeting twice. We shot both meetings every day. And we would put the camera in the back of the crowd. And yep. then we had like a 50-foot microphone cable. Yep. An XLR cable running up to the front. Yeah, with the shotgun mic. And pretty much John Fisher always wanted to be the mic guy. 
And so we would give him the little handheld shotgun mic and he would just sit there in the front row and point it at Newton. And then we had a 50 foot cable in the back. So we had literally a one person crew, but we were able to get really high quality audio because we had the, you know, the equipment in the front and the camera in the back. And then when, when we were editing at the back end of it all, we were able to pick the best moments from that daily talk. And whether it was the first shift or the second shift, we got to kind of like choose the performance of Newton that worked. Yep. And then we had this whole other thing where if you look back at the film, some of the reaction shots are not the same day as the original shot. Yep. So there's a lot of movie magic that happened in there on the back end of like really creating the feeling that everyone's in the same room at the same moment. But there was a lot of good editing. Oh, yeah, lots. Because, you know, it depended on the meeting. Like, we only have one camera. It's not like we had multiple cameras. I mean, this is a very expensive equipment. We don't have iPhones then, <laughs> you know, that we could just shoot stuff. So we have one camera. We're trying to get his best stuff and best inspirational things, but then also trying to catch some reactions and things like that. So, yeah, those reactions could be from a different week you know, but made it feel like they're reacting to something he's saying in that moment, you know. And then, like you said, we had Matt and Eddie working with me, and they were great. Like, Eddie was in the film, Matt was, and they helped me, you know, work along, and they helped me with running some sound and doing this and that. And kind of the wild thing is that years later, I went to AFI, and Eddie was interested in AFI. Um, you know, the American Film Institute Conservatory. And just as I was there, I think I was on my second year, Eddie contacted me and was like, hey, I just have some questions about that because he wanted to be a filmmaker. And he is an accomplished filmmaker right now, and he's done a number of features. And I met with him, and he's, you know, that's all a connection of Mr. Newton and the Long Green Line and the team. And, you know, I advised him to go to AFI, and he, he did go. And I think his brother is in the band The Orwells. Yes, he is, yeah. And he did phenomenal music videos for The Orwells, yes. Yeah, yeah. so and that was... A... How he, I think it spurred all of his filmmaking, you know, aspirations. Yeah, I love that, you know, the momentum started then. Yeah, and it's wild, to, you know, these connections that come together years later, you know. And I was like, wow, you guys were my, my right-hand guys, you know, helping me out. And you were in high school. And then like a decade later, you're like, hey, yeah, I want to go into film. Yeah, so you you moved back to film. I stayed here because I had a full-time job teaching. So basically, I would fly in every weekend. I would take the red eye, Mm -hmm. usually on a Friday night. My dad would pick me up at O'Hare. We'd go to McDonald's and get an Egg McMuffin. I might take a nap for an hour, and then I'd meet you wherever the meet was or the practice was. Yeah. And so throughout those first three weeks, four weeks, we started to sort of cast the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. So we started to see who is, you know, which characters are interesting and who communicates what. And so John Fisher and Connor Chadwick came up right away because they were showing how Mr. Newton didn't care. He didn't care about your ability. He just cared about your heart. Yeah. And those two guys are were such great examples of the inclusivity of the of the team. For sure. That Newton invited them to the team. As long as you show up, as long as you do your best. You're one of us. Yeah. And be on time. Don't be late. If you're late twice, I'm kicking your ass off the team. You know, that's, that's, you just got to follow those things. And everybody did because they wanted to be there. And so I know for, 
just the timeline of things. I came home for like two weeks before school, before their school started, because Chicago schools started earlier than they do here. Mm-hmm. We typically start like after Labor Day here, and in Chicago, it's like two weeks before Labor Day. Yeah. Especially, and then sports start like three or four weeks before then. And so I was definitely there for the golf scene. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so the golfing that scene was fun. was fun. We were like, you know, they told us they were going golfing and I'm like, okay. And we showed up and they were dressed like total idiots. Yeah. A bunch of clowns. And it looked amazing. <laughs> Which it was fun. Because yeah. that was such a great scene because it showed these guys who were the national champion cross country team doing something, doing a sport that they're really bad at. Yes. And still having a lot of fun with it mm-hmm. and just going hanging out with all their buddies and that camaraderie was so important and that's when we started to really get to know ross detman who Mm -hmm. was the twins father he's a espn photographer and shot a lot for a lot of big sports yes magazines and a phenomenal photographer and so we lined up a lot of those interviews i think we interviewed all the detmans then which was that before the season and i think we interviewed newton another time then Mm mm-hmm and we started to sort of cast the movie. And at that golf outing, Brian Marchese was there. Yeah. Chronologically, the fire already happened. Yes. But none of us knew about it. Well, I will say that I heard the rumblings, I want to say late summer, because, you know, I was literally sitting with these guys all the time. And it's high school. They're talking about all kinds of things. I never really had confirmation of that until later in the season, but the rumblings were around. You know, you'd hear like guys making a few off-handed comments or little jokes or something. And, you know, we're not from Elmhurst, so, you know, neither one of us even really knew about that fire that happened in the summer. Yeah, I think it happened like before we showed up. Yeah, it was like early summer. It was before, you know, because I think I got there like in July or something. Because I started shooting the summer practices, you know, like maybe mid-summer or something. But yeah, I believe it happened already. Neither one of us knew about that. And so for people that aren't totally caught up on that, in the film, there is a moment where the number three and number five guys on the team, and that's a team of 220 guys, gets kicked off. And Newton is very strict about, being very strict about rules, mm-hmm. he re- enforces all of the rules completely equitably, yep. whether you're the best guy or the worst guy. Doesn't and matter. So these two boys were arrested, expelled from school, and charged with arson. They burned down a million-dollar house. Yep, that was under construction. And so there were two that were 17 and one that was under 17. But all three of them were on the team, and all three of them got kicked out of school. Yep. And we didn't know what to do. So you were more boots on the ground during all of it and you and i would talk like every single night and be like you know what just happened uh, yeah and i was like wait what yeah i it blew my mind away and i was just like i yeah like calling you i was like dude can you ble- I, I gotta tell you this you all this all went down today you know and i remember like being on the track and like the principal calling in you know different runners and I do remember like charlie i think he got called in or he just got back from talking or something and i'm like all this rumblings were going on. I'm like, holy moly, what's going on? And then, you know, you get word through more runners. They're like, yeah, it was this arson, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, whoa, this is this is crazy going on. And then it started totally unfolding of what really went on. And so what we know of like what actually happened there was like it was three of these guys and they were up in a half-built house that was under construction. Yeah, They were playing around with cardboard and matches. Mm-hmm. And they... Just decided to start a fire. 
I, yeah. I guess we don't. I don't know. We're yeah, and that that's still one of those kind of questions of what were what was going through their mind. We we don't know. And and, and you and I really you know we talked through that. We're like, well, was there a ringleader? Did one of mm-hmm. them do it? And the other ones just kind of got caught up in it. Yeah. Did they all do it? And ultimately, it was you know it was an incredibly dramatic moment in the film. And so when we were editing. You know, as film structure goes, that was sort of the beginning of Act Two. Mm-hmm. We set this whole nice, beautiful story yep. up in Act One. He recruits guys. Yep. He's getting the, the freshmen. Pro- the projectory is going towards the state meet and all of these things. And yes, and we laid down the rules. Like you get seven guys. This is how it works. This is the top seven. And then it was like, Arr! yep, maybe not. Yeah. But before that, one of the funnest days, I think, was was the freshman recruiting day. Yes. Yeah, that was a lot. And that's when we had Joe Kilbasa. Yeah, um, very charismatic. Yes. Just happened to be the most perfect, most perfect character to symbolize both Newton, his Chicago roots, because those of you who aren't from Chicago might not know that Chicago has the second largest Polish population in the world outside of Warsaw. And there's no other city that has more Polish people than Chicago except Warsaw. Mm-hmm. And so Newton's wife was Polish. My mother was Polish. Like it's the most common thing. And if you look at like our school yearbook, oh yeah, it's really hard to pronounce a lot of people's last names because it's a lot of Z's and C's and W's and yeah. SKI's. <laughs> and so it was cool. We went back to the re- recruiting thing. Brian Marchese was very enthusiastic. He was excited. He was a great kid. And then the fire hit, and then it was like we had to deal with the principal and all this kind of stuff. Yes. But I do believe... We had interviewed her before all that. Yeah, we did. I believe we did. I want to say we did. And so, just so and we had and we had built, you know, we, you know, we had built a good rapport with the principal, with people, you know, with different teachers and different administration at the school. So we, you know, felt comfortable around everyone, and I think they, you know, eventually became very comfortable with us as well. Yeah, and so that rapport was really an important part of the film's success. And the fact that you went back home and you were always there. Yes. Eventually, I think you sort of faded into the fabric of the wall. And they just, the kids no longer, they weren't conscious of a camera. I think it may have even worked to York's advantage at meets that York was being filmed and they were comfortable with it. But the Mm -hmm. other teams were like, well, there's... Yeah, I I did kind of blend in after a while. At first, you know, everybody was a little apprehensive and things like that. But I kind of embedded myself with everyone. And, you know, and there are times that I'd go hang out while they're having pasta dinner at people's houses. I got to become, you know, friendly with all the parents. So they were comfortable and, and to show that, like, you know, we're not here to cause any problems. We're here to document things. And that's when, you know, the kids became much more comfortable just talking and being high school kids. And I was just hanging around. I was just on the side here and there. And I heard all kinds of, you know, regular high school banter that they got comfortable that, oh, it's just right. He's just hanging out with us. So that helped both of us to really kind of be real, real close to everyone and be able to get the stories that we were looking for. And so during that time, we sort of periodically would set up interviews every weekend. So when I was in town, we'd do interviews and meets. It was kind of meets and interviews were the weekends. And then the practices and the daily unfolding was was the week. Yep. And so just give me your general thoughts on the the the, proje- the trajectory of the season. Because I will point out one thing. And you don't really get this from watching the movie. They never lost a meet. 
Yep. But it wasn't all glory. No. So what did the season feel like? I mean, you know, the season, as it unfolded, it, it, yes, they won every meet. I mean, they were at the top of the game, even when they lost multiple top runners with the, with the arson, things like that. Their team, you know, the team is so deep that you lose a couple guys and they fill in. And, and they're in the top seven. They're always switching around depending on the meet. But yeah, it still felt, even when I was there, it still felt like there was tension of like, are they going to win? Are they going to lose? How is it going to go? You know, and while you're there embedded with all of these kids and, and the coaches and everything, you know, there are times that you're like, oh, they're not feeling, you know, that runner's not feeling good. How is he going to do? Is he going to be able to pull it off? You know, and then you get really comfortable with all the other guys that aren't the top runners. You know, and those guys are really endearing as well because they're there for the spirit of the team. They know they're not going to put any points on the board. But yeah, as the season progressed, it was like, how are we going to tell the story? They just keep winning. But while I'm in the moment, and I think a lot of the parents can attest to this too, is when you're in the moment, it's still exciting because you're not sure if they will win. And then you have all these different adversities that did happen during the summer. A lot of it, you know, not is, isn't necessarily in the movie. Because some of it is a little more mundane. Somebody is, oh, you know, they're not feeling well. And that slowed down their whole week. You know, or certain guys had minor injuries that maybe threw themselves off for a week and lost some meats or whatever. But then they would kind of come back. So there's still a lot of kind of drama going on. But... You, you know, they still won all the time, you know, but it was still a great kind of build to the state meet of like, are they going to win the state meet again? You know, are they going to do it? How are these guys going to handle the pressure? Because when you're there, you know, every day, you know, I saw that pressure every day with them. And being on the team when I was in high school, I knew what that pressure was. I wasn't in the top seven, so I didn't feel that as a runner as much, but just being on the team, you put a lot of pressure on yourself to still be the best that you possibly can, even if you're never going to score a point. You know, it doesn't matter. You're still trying to do the best. And you're, the big thing is you're still trying to beat your teammates. Mm. That's what a lot of it was, too. You know, you've got so many runners out there, you know, in the team, and it's so deep that, hey, I'm not going to win a point. I'm not going to do anything for the team. I really, a lot of the time, you're like, I don't mean anything, but I do mean a lot because of the camaraderie. And then you're still trying to beat your buddy. You know, you're in group two or group three, group five or group six. You're still trying to be at the top of that group. So there's still a lot of competitiveness in those other groups that never score any points. One thing that was really interesting that came up when I talked to the twins in their interview, they had mentioned that they had so much depth on the team that and the Nike team national meet mm -hmm. was what's called an open invite, meaning that any school can you can it they you weren't it wasn't just one team per school. So they had actually thought about submitting two teams because mm -hmm. they had that much depth mm -hmm. and they thought that they could get first and second with 14 guys yep. and not just seven. That pretty much blew my mind. Yeah, altogether. the depth is unbelievable. So I came home for all the major meets, especially at the back end. Conference, regional, sectional, state. 
Yes. Consecutive weekends. And you have to win or get in the top three of each in order to advance to the next week. Conference, not so much. Conference is sort of everyone goes to conference and doesn't matter. But then regional, sectional, state, you have to win regional, win state, win sectional, win state. So the arson stuff sort of happened, I think, like late September. Yes. And so, well, and also the alcohol incident as well. Which I realized they got kicked off for alcohol before they would have gotten kicked off for arson. Yes. But not all three of the boys were kicked off for alcohol. No. But two of them were. Yeah, two of them were. And, you know, like... The burden was the catalyst for that drinking incident. And so that's something that we talked a lot with the Detmans about is what did you do to cope with the stress? Because yeah. we, it became very clear that by the time the regional and sectional hit, their viral infection was probably a stress response to mm-hmm. the, the, the stress they were dealing with. Just yeah. And the mix-up of the top seven. All, all of a sudden, it was like quite a mix-up and you lost guys that you'd been running with for years. So they went from like thinking they were going to win they could doubly win nationals mm-hmm. to like, we might not even win one state. Yeah. So that was a lot of pressure and they were seniors and they were trying to get college scholarships. So they were everything that, that could go wrong was going wrong. And I think they were feeling the stress. They shared a bedroom. They literally had bunk beds and yeah. just being in that same energy space with each other, I think really was the cause of their For viral sure. reaction. So we, in the film, you see like we really gave each regional, sectional, and state like its own dramatic arc, mm-hmm. made it seem like they weren't going to win any of them, and then they they came through. But they did, those top seven changes, which are rare for a York team, were common that season. Yes. So yes. you want to talk about like the, that switcheroo that kind of led from regional, sectional to state? Because I know like Lionel got in there, Young got in there, yes. Fisher was in there for like a half second. Yeah, I mean, that was really a dynamic part that I saw and experienced right with each one of those guys. When they're like, I'm in number three or number four or number five, and then all of a sudden, they literally just don't do very well in one meet. Or even in practice, they're not doing what they need to do. And they're trying everything they can, but just like anything, you know, you've got your off week, and that happens. But an off week literally means you could almost get bumped out of the top seven. And the stress is so crazy that you're thinking like, am I going to even get back into position to actually run in state? I've been working four years to this goal. And guys switching back and forth, it was, I mean, you know, I got connected with all these guys and was right there with them. And it was hard to see. They had been just killing themselves and then all of a sudden they lost a position. And it, because it was such a deep team, it was very like slim of a thing that changed, that all of a sudden they bumped into p- different positions. So watching that build up to the state meet was at times disheartening because you're like, man, I really hope this guy keeps, keeps in that spot. Oh, man, I really hope that blah, blah, blah jumps into the top seven. And that was a really interesting dynamic to see how each one of the guys or you know boys basically handled that and handled that stress of moving up or moving back depending on what they're doing you know because you move up a position you move from just from five to four that's a huge stress jump too because you know that there's almost 10 guys behind you that are pushing to get into those positions so yeah building up to the state meet it was exciting to see guys move up into position in certain slots, 
but then also disheartening because somebody got bumped out. I feel like Young was one of the best. Uh, yeah. He sort of articulated it best where he was kind of like, well, you know, I did my best and, you know, I do it for the team and this one's for the team and whatever. And it's like, yeah, it really solidified how important the team was. There was not a selfish motivation from any of them. They were kind of like, they wanted it, sure, but like the team was more important than just you being in the yeah, top seven. Yeah, you being the top seven. And that, that was really a big part of the team was it's like, it's a team effort. Even when you got bumped out, that runner was still supporting and encouraging the guys in the top seven. So it didn't matter, you know, they're all about the team and no matter what position you were at. And yeah, you'd be disappointed that, oh, I bumped back a different position or whatever, but they were still like, it doesn't matter. It's for the team. We want the whole team. We want the top seven to win. And if if I'm not performing, I may have my own reasons of why I'm just not getting there, but I'm happy for my fellow guys and runners that are there. So that was a great thing to watch too is this team effort together to win the different meets and it was all about that and so let's go to state so state has always been the cadillac of meets and you know like we said when we were in high school it was like a true main event that everybody went down for that was one of the highlights almost of the year was to go down there of course be in high school have a fun time but to experience the energy experience mr newton's energy and the coaches' energy, and the runners, and the course, and all those people, you know, all these different schools, all these different parents from all over the state, it was quite a thing. And when you go back to the gym, I mean, the band and all that stuff. Yeah, so I think I like to think that I started doing research for this film probably in like sixth grade. I think my sister was like an alternate when she was in ninth grade for the girls team. And so my parents were like, well, we're going to go downstate. We're going to go, we're going to stay at the Holodome in Peoria. And there's a swimming pool and there's Mm -hmm. a, a hospitality suite with the parents. And so I started to like learn about these traditions and these rituals at that point. And so one of the things that they do is before all of these major meets, the conference, regional, sectional, state, Newton would always require the boys to wear suits. I gotta, gotta, gotta look sharp, gotta run sharp, gotta look sharp, feel sharp, run sharp. And he stole that from the Yankees. Yep. And I guess one of the, it was one of Steinbrenner's things maybe back in the day, and he would have his guys dressing up. And that was the idea, look sharp, feel sharp, play sharp. Yep. And so the guys would always wear suits. But then, of course, state was about tuxedos Mm -hmm. so it's like you would wear a suit to the races as they were getting on the buses to go downstate to stay at the hotel and then when they got there you know if they won so they would get fitted the week before in elmhurst the top seven would choose the style of suit Mm -hmm. and i think throughout our tenure at york we saw white suits black suits cummerbund combos Mm -hmm. it was always kind of whatever the hot yeah, tuxedo the trend that style. was going on. Yeah, yep. And so and it would be like, oh, you get, we're going to take canes, or we're going to have hats, or this or that. Yep. And so going down state, it it definitely had. I think in when we were outlining and really planning the film and the filming, there was a few things that got modified since when we were down there. Like one thing when we were in high school, there would be a big award ceremony indoors at Peoria High School mm-hmm. or Peoria Richwood yes. High School, one of the high schools in Peoria, and. 
I think basically half of the gymnasium would be York fans. Yes. And I think that's probably why they really wanted to shift in a different direction as we got to this, you know, new world model. Yes. But now they do the award ceremony is at the course, mm-hmm. which is Detweiler Park. It's still the park that they do the state meet at. So we were there for the state meet. And so we had hired a bunch of extra people. We had a couple extra PAs. We had a couple extra camera people. We mapped it out along the course. Mm-hmm. We had a camera at like each of the major turns. I was the camera on Newton. Mm-hmm. I think you were at the start and finish and then mm-hmm. sort of went back and forth in between there. Yep. And so we had to really coordinate the choreography of where cameras would be. And we were really kind of bootstrapping it still. And we were I totally mean, bootstrapping. Like everybody thinks like, oh, that sounds big. It wasn't. It was literally pulling in some of our friends that knew how to run a camera, things like that. It was not easy, and to be on a big course like that, we didn't we didn't have walkie talkies. I think my girlfriend at the time was there, and yes, we plugged yep. her into a wireless microphone thing mm-hmm. and just said, "Point this at Mr. Newton at all times." Yeah, we had barely any money, so if, if we had any money, we would have had walkie talkies talking to each other. But no, we we're just this is our plan. Once the race started, we're like everybody's kind of going for it and doing their thing. So of the rituals of state, they always stay at the same hotel. Mm -hmm. They always go to the same restaurant the morning of. It's always the exact same meal. Yeah. It's like oatmeal, toast, jam, no butter. Yeah. It's not even like what you wouldn't consider it like a truly healthy menu. Old school kind of thing, but but consistent all the time. And I think we'll we'll dig it up and we'll we'll put that out. And everybody knew like that's what we're doing. And so I, I somehow knew like the history of Newton, that there was going to be the hold on, like the last leaf on the tree. Mm-hmm. We knew that was going to be, that's always the speech he gives. He always references Sebco, says, do you like Sebco today? Run free today. And one of the things I want to point out that was such a gift for us is the weather. Oh, yeah. Before the huh. state meet, it had barely rained, which meant that Peoria Detweiler Park was in full fall bloom. Like the colors mm-hmm. were just popping off the trees. And that night, the night that we filmed, so the race was that morning, and I think like three or four that afternoon, it poured rain and stripped every tree of the leaves. Mm -hmm. So like nature really held up just until that last leaf on the tree for us. Yes. So the boys, I think they changed into their tuxedo. They won state. We have that. There was a bit of a, you know, moment where they didn't know what to do. And Mm -hmm. then like Newton's like, where's that? I told you not to talk to the press. Get over here. And so finally they announced that they won. Yeah, and, and the thing is they they always they do their counts as their as the race is going. So they they were pretty sure they won, but there's it still was like are our numbers right according to official numbers? So it was like we think we won but uh, we don't know if it's official yet, you know. So it still was a lot of energy of like what happened. And so yeah, so we they ended up winning. They ended up getting the awards on the course. Yep. We did have a technical difficulty at that point. At some point, somewhere during the race, the camera that was on the finish line went off and it wasn't recording. So those of you who've seen the movie and you're wondering, why didn't you show York at the end crossing the finish line? It's because we didn't have the footage. Yes, but we were bootstrapping it and mistakes happen. We did get... We licensed the shot of the finish. Mm -hmm. I forget the name of the two guys, but there was like one athlete outstep the other which was an incredible finish like i don't think there's ever been a more photo finish than that one so we ended up putting that in and we just kind of like didn't say much after that yeah i mean we did the the best we could with what we got and the thing is in reality when we looked at it's like it's hard to even tell because there's so many guys running in and with the cross-country race it's like there's so many runners coming in and it's not like 
oh, they've got fourth, fifth, seven and eighth, and ten. Oh, they won. It's spread out quite a bit. So in a way, it was like, you're almost watching all these guys run in, and it's like, well, uh, you don't even know who really is in the lead, because there's just so many guys running in and all different uniforms and stuff. So And so at the end there, you see the finish. Yep, it was amazing. And yep. then we kind of leaned heavily on music. Yep. And I think Kyle put like a like a real plucky sort of cello, like boom, boom, mm-hmm. boom, boom, boom. Yeah, like you know really kind of build that tension, tension the build of is did they, they do it winning? and then you see like one of the detmans giving an interview and then you see newton yelling about the interviews so you're like wait what happened is it did they do it i don't know i think we did it i don't know it sounds like we did it. yeah <laughs> and then finally we get the we get the result and it was triumphant so like personally when that happened i i think at that point in this film that was like the last thing i even cared about because it was like okay they got the, this fire thing happened this happened Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, and then finally something went right, and it was like, oh, they did win. Okay. Yeah. Wait, they did won. This is it. They won. Okay, <laughs> great. Boom. And then after the state meet, they always go, like, those. the school buses full of kids always would go to the rally at the high school in the award ceremony. Then they'd stop at Hardee's. Yep. And when I was in high school, I vividly remember going to Hardee's afterwards. And it was like the top athletes went to Hardee's. Yes. Like they all went and everybody showed up there. And, and it was like the buses would go. And and even when I wasn't on the bus, my junior and senior year in high school, like we all drove over to the Hardee's because we knew that's where you go. <laughs> and it was like the high school sports version of, you know, pouring champagne on the, the winner, on the yeah. quarterback. It was like, oh, getting a fried chicken sandwich with the top runner. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it's Chicago. People like their fast food. So then everybody, the, the buses stop at Hardee's, the, at, the runners stop at Hardee's, and then they meet up at the parking lot at the grocery store on the south side of Elmhurst. Mm-hmm. And then they start a parade going from the south side through the north side, through downtown, and then land everyone at the high school. Yeah. And, and anybody that, and anybody's seen the movie of, you know, the... The fire department comes out. The police department comes out. I mean, everybody in town. And they buy tons and tons and tons, tons and tons of toilet paper. Tons of toilet paper. It is basically a road of toilet paper as the parade goes along. And people that weren't even down at state show up. They even go like driving along with everybody else. And everybody comes out of their house in downtown Elmhurst. Everybody came out. People are flicking their porch lights because it's like 10 yes. p.m. Yeah. And it's, people it's are not, like, it's not early anymore. And like Mrs. Fisher was saying, she's like, yeah, I have a friend that says, you know, I always know when it's fall because you get these crazy people honking down the street yes. at 10 p.m. A little too late of the hours for Elmhurst. Yeah. And everybody knows, oh, we hear sirens and yelling and all this stuff. Oh, they won. Yeah. And so then they go back to the the school a couple interesting things that happened when we were filming i don't remember where did you one of us i think i might have rode in a car yes and you might have been on the sidewalk man it was so chaotic i think you were in a car i mean we both had cameras yeah i think you rode along with somebody i think i was with ross because i think i may have been like in a convertible yeah and ross and so he and i know we ducked at one point But I think there is a shot where we see the car we were in and maybe Ross you can see, but I think I was ducking. I think so. And then I was, I think, kind of hybrid. Like, I think somebody was driving and I would be out on the street here and there. Then I'd jump in the car, quickly get up to the front of the parade, and then I'd, like, jump out and pick up stuff and things like that. And then you were, like, riding along with the whole 
parade. And if you watch the movie, we leaned heavily on Ross for a lot of that stuff. Yes. yes. And so that's where we have those animated still photo sequences where you just kind of like stop motion into the grocery store, see the toilet paper Mm -hmm. falling and getting thrown all around and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, we have phenomenal photos and just like anything, it's like, you know, the two of us, we couldn't be at every spot. So he definitely was great to fill in a few holes that were difficult to grab because timings are tough yeah so that was like just chaos one thing i do remember i I don't know i was in a car and like we drove by and brian marchese was standing on the side of the side of the road cheering and it was like we it was just serendipitous that every single person that we needed to sort of just check in with Mm -hmm. we were able to find at last we saw connor walking in he's like yes that really enthusiastic thing john fisher the Fisher family, the Kearns, everybody who had kind of been referenced got a shout back at the end. And then, of course, you know, the conclusion, which really established the inclusivity just once and for all, is with John Fisher's speech. So at the yes. end of the thing, the high school, they go through a huge parade through the town. They buy tons and tons of toilet paper. They throw the toilet paper while they're riding. They bring the toilet paper into the gymnasium at the high school. They yeah. have the trophy set up. They have the chair set up. Newton says a little bit about each one of the athletes. And this particular year, John Fisher didn't get a medal, but Charlie Kern took the mic at the end of it all. Charlie Kern was the assistant coach. And he said, you know, there's one guy out there who really wanted this. He didn't get it, but I'm giving it to him. And so John Fisher took the medal. He made a really, really heartfelt speech. And he just kind of became the heart of the film. Yeah, that was just an unbelievably touching moment. The two of us being there and seeing that you know, following everybody for the entire season, that hit me in the heart really heavy too. It was fantastic. On top of that, that was probably like the 18th hour of that day that we had been yeah, working. We're and, exhausted. And they're like, hey, you want to come to the after party for the pasta dinner? We're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were so tired and burnt out. I mean, you know, everybody has to realize it's a couple hour drive to Peoria, a couple hour drive back. On top All of that, you're, we were, you know, having to manage battery charging, All tapes to back up, yeah, labeling tape. We're using tapes, tapes DV tape. on tape. Shooting DV tape, making sure you're able to swap out tapes really quick, making sure your labeling tapes are not losing tapes, making sure your battery's charged. And we had been going nonstop for a couple days. And it's like we had been there the day before when they went to the buffet to have dinner and, and all of those things. Like, I know we slept at a hotel. I have no recollection I, of any of I, that. That's so fuzzy that I, I mean, I think we were at the Red Roof Inn, I think, with the I, team. I, I honestly, don't know. That I, was, it was so blurry. But I was like, well, we did go to dinner the night before at the buffet, right? Yeah, I think so. Because <laughs> like, I, I mean, morning. we were there when the team left the high school. We followed them down. We somehow landed at the hotel. At the hotel. We got a hotel room. We were back at the room that morning. Yeah. And I, well, and the night before, they went to the buffet. Yeah, like Old Country Buffet. Old Country or Buffet. And then they always go see a movie. We didn't go to the movie. Oh, yeah. You know, because uh, the traditionally, it's like go to the buffet, then go see a movie, and then you go to bed at a decent hour. But, you know, we drove down there. We shot some of that, and we we're like, eh, you know. And But yeah, it was a blur. I <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. And so I want to ask you a question. So, you know, the theme of the film kind of is cross country is like life and the life lessons that you can learn in cross country, you can apply directly to life. So as a York alum runner, talk about your personal influence on your life and your career and how did Mr. Newton sort of inform that? Sure. That's a big question. (laughs) Um, Mr. Newton 
taught me so many things just like everyone that not even just runners just anybody that was around him so many different life lessons but you know a lot of it comes down to i felt like perseverance you know you persevere through all kinds of things and just like you know running is life is that you know like you're persevering through all kinds of hurdles while you're running your mental state your physical state the pressures that you're dealing with other runners that you're trying to compete against all those things even if you're not one of the top runners because you know mr newton always instilled in, in every runner no matter if you're literally the last guy coming in on the team you give it a hundred and ten percent and you do the best that you possibly can you know and i took a lot of that from him when i learned that in high school and really applied that you know, to my whole life and my career is, you know, you work hard. He really instilled work ethic, the aspects of stepping up when you need to step up. And, you know, you persevere through obstacles because life always has obstacles. And we saw that in the movie all the time that guys had their own personal obstacles that you work to overcome and persevere those. You know, because obstacles sometimes are going to try to stop you in your tracks and you need to keep running past them. So that was a lot of kind of things that I grabbed and also the rules. The rules are the rules for everybody. And it doesn't matter if you are the top runner in life. You know, you follow the rules that he said, like, don't be late you know, all of those kinds of things, you can take that and apply that to everything that you do in life. You know, you follow those things, you do the best that you can with what you have. And then on top of it, you know, he really instilled that you can develop all kinds of things in your life. And you see that in the film. You see that, you know, hey, I don't have that talent, but you know what? If I keep working at it, I may not be the top, but you know what? I can get really close. And I can really persevere and work hard to, to accomplish some of the goals that you put in front of you. And everybody can tackle those goals, you know. And there's so many different things that I learned from Mr. Newton that I've applied that it's, it became ingrained in me. That I sometimes don't even realize that that's some of the things that I actually learned from Mr. Newton. You know, so a lot of aspects there. The big thing, like, you know, it's nice to be great but far greater to be nice. That I have always taken to heart as well, is that, you know, you need to treat people the right way. And yeah, it's great to be on the top of the podium, but you know what? If you stepped on a lot of people to get there, I don't know if that's as fulfilling as, as, as it would be, you know, and, you know, things like that. And so talk about your career path after this movie. Sure. So after the film, actually, when we were releasing the film, I got, you know, definitely just like any industry or anything, and especially working in a creative aspect, you know, I got a little burnt out on the different things that I was editing. I was working as a professional editor on a variety of things, but I come to Hollywood to be, you know, a scripted editor to, to edit features. So, you know, I got burnt out. I wasn't working in scripted content. You know, I had been working in, you know, action sports and promos and, you know, short films and things like that, too. 
But I said, you know, I need to move to that next level. And a lot of that does come from Mr. Newton. Like, push through this and persevere. Figure out how do you want to get to that next level and get to those next goals. So I chose to kind of step back a little bit and go back to school. So I applied to the American Film Institute Conservatory to get my master's degree in film editing, which is the only film editing master's in the U.S. And going to that conservatory, you know, specific disciplines that you go to learn and advance. So I went there to advance my editing and really push myself extremely hard in that craft. And I had amazing mentors. Don Camburn was one of my mentors. You know, he edited Easy Rider and Romancing the Stone and Ghostbusters 2 and big movies in the 90s. So he opened up my mind of editing in a different way that I probably would have never had. So I went back to you know school. Went there for two and a half years, really, for editors, because in your second year, you know, first year is all practice. We do all kinds of different practice films. You got to follow the rules, follow the union rules, everything. And then the second year is doing your thesis film. And then as an editor, you're stuck there, usually another half a year finishing up the thesis film. So that really, you know, restarted my career. And it was basically a start over. Because I was moving into an entirely different part of the industry as an editor. So that was nerve-wracking to do that. Because I decided I'm not going to be doing any of the work that I was doing. I'm going to focus on being a feature film editor. That did take a number of years for me to finally get my first shot to do a feature. So during that time, I did a lot of different editing and different post-production work to up my skills. And I met my producing partners and my business partners uh, a couple of, you know, literally, geez, like six months or so after I graduated. And we've been working together for almost 11 years now. And uh, during that time, we decided our focus was to do feature films. So we started a production company focusing to work on producing features. And then shortly after that, I had started out in a small post-production facility when I first moved out here. So I decided that, you know, at that time I said, you know what, I can, I, I know I can build the skills in the years to come to be able to start my own post-production company. So I started, you know, our production company is called Turbo Panda Productions. And then I started Rocket Panda Post. My producing partner and business partner, Josh, he's our premier colorist. So, you know, we started that about five years ago or so, and we do post-production for TV and films. We do editorial, so I cut feature films. Uh, I work in the independent world. You know, I like independent films a lot because I do have a lot more creative freedom to do a lot of different ideas. When you go into more studio films, you know, there's a lot more higher-ups that kind of control some of the aspects of filmmaking at times. So yeah, I've been cutting feature films now for six, seven years. Our post-production company, we've done all kinds of different independent films, TV movies, and we've done a lot of music videos and all kinds of things like that. And then uh, with our production company, we just, uh, we've done a bunch of co-productions on independent films and TV movies as well. Uh, and then we try to overlap them from, you know, production-wise to into our post-production house. And I've built, you know, a workflow and a post-production workflow from set all the way to delivering to distributors. And recently, right before the pandemic hit, 
we shot our you know first film that we fully developed the script from scratch and did everything and cast everything. The film's called Overrun. We shot it in the winter of 2019, and as we were in post-production, the pandemic hit. So that really, in our industry, was devastating. It definitely devastated a lot of our business. But, you know, we survived, and we all we worked on our film. Problem was, a lot of things were closed. So it took us until this last August, you know, because we got the editing done. We locked the film. But how do you finish the film if all the sound stages for doing the sound mixing is closed? You know, everybody can do a lot of remote work. And we got all that remote work done. We had over 300 VFX to do. We had 320 VFX. So, you know, we farmed that out to a couple VFX artists that we work with. So once we locked the film, we're, you know, during the pandemic, all everybody's working from home, doing VFX. Our sound team, Steve, he's amazing. They're working on all the sound in their own, you know, apartments and things. But then it's still delayed because most people don't know is that like when you do your final sound mix, you need to be on a sound stage, a sound mixing stage. You know, you shoot movies on a sound stage, but then there's a sound mixing stage, which is just like a movie theater. It's a huge movie theater. And you need to be in that space to know how it's going to sound. And you work for, you know, a week or two on that sound mixing stage, tweaking the sound, making sure it sounds right in the 5.1, all those things. So that, you know, all of those factors slowed us down. But the film doesn't take itself seriously. It's just a fun kind of popcorn film, action thriller kind of film. You know, uh, a lot of our team comes from stunts and things like that. So we decided, like, that was kind of going to be our first kind of major film that we would do. And so where can we see Overrun? Sure. It came out on VOD in August. So it's on VOD right now. Every platform that exists, I mean, everything. And then on the 14th of this month, November, we are releasing on DVD in Walmart. So we're extremely happy and excited that Walmart was very interested in our film and wanted to release it into their stores. And, uh, and then very shortly, probably by the end of the year, January, we'll be going to broadcast. Not quite sure where, but, you know, Showtime or something like that. And also pay streaming, Pluto and all of those, IMDb TV and things like that. And then eventually to Netflix. But, you know, in our industry, Netflix is where your film goes to die. Because, <laughs> you know, they don't pay much for acquisitions. So, you know, for smaller films, uh, Netflix is great for exposure and it's fun to be on there, but you run all the other gamuts first. So, yeah, so I wanted to break into a, just a little conversation about technology because Netflix triggered the thought that I don't know how we did it, but somehow we did sell a bunch of DVDs to Netflix. Yeah. And I think you can still rent the Long Green Line on DVD if you have the mail-in program for Netflix. And that was amazing when we were able to get that going. They changed their business model when they started doing all their streaming stuff. But that particular technology is something that I want to talk more about. So this film was really kind of created and released right at the last end of so many technologies. So DVD being our final medium for release, I think, helped us out 
because mm-hmm. you make more money and we self-distributed. So let's just put that out there. So yes. it means that we had to create partnerships with fulfillment houses, which were just online stores that would warehouse our DVDs and sell them. They ran the credit cards. They took a percentage of it. And of course, those companies ended up going out of business. Yes. With some shady dealings that we ended up going to court on and we we triumphed. Yes. And I do remember us going to that warehouse and getting all of our material and all of our stuff back yeah and so when you talk about dvds i'm like shocked that people still have dvds but then you point out people in rural areas and i think netflix still has mail order dvd yeah so and and the thing is just like you know with the infrastructure bill we're trying to get broadband out there so a lot of people that you know are in more urban areas don't realize that internet's not so great out there so Redbox and walmart are extremely popular yeah with dvds which gives Walmart a good leg up. Yeah. So let's just have a little technology riff. We filmed this film in standard definition. The decision to do that was a tough one because yeah. well, it was mostly financial based. Yeah. And it was on, almost really our only option at the time when we started. Yeah. Because HD was extraordinarily expensive and we couldn't even really get our hands on a camera. To yeah. Do I HD. think the cameras were like $20,000. It was outrageous, you know. Whereas and the SD cameras were like 5000 Yeah. And, you know, and that digital revolution happened, you know, right around that 2002 2003 when all of a sudden wow there's these these dv cameras with digital tape and wow they were expensive but not out of the realm of being able to purchase them and dv tape were like wow this is unreal you know especially when like an example like when i was in college and i shot on digibeta sp that was a huge ass camera on my shoulder and that was only maybe four years before we started shooting and so our decision to shoot in SD was mostly financial. First, the cameras were expensive, the tapes cost more, and then the hard drives that we would have needed were about three times the size. Yes. Well, and a lot of independent films were jumping into the DV world. You know, that yeah. was a huge thing. There were thing. films that were fully shot on digital video. Yeah. And they went to theaters. They played in yep. theaters. There was a whole company called Indigent. Yeah. And I think they shot like 10 films with that same camera that we used. Yeah. And people forget that like SD... Yes, now doesn't look so great, but at the time, and still even today, you can project SD in a theater and it still looks pretty good. It's all about the technology of how to project that image. So that was a big decision. So I always tell my students today, my Mm -hmm. film students, that our first hard drive was 500 gigabytes. Mm -hmm. I remember we got the sturdy hard drive we could count on a G-RAID. Yep. And it was 500 gigabytes. And we got it for the bargain price of $1,300. Yes. And we were just like, how do we even afford that? And then we thought, can we get another one to make a copy of our stuff? And we're like, we can't afford that. We couldn't afford We're just that. Like, we let's like, just hope the hard drive holds up. I, I mean, it was even less expensive for us to duplicate the tapes yes. than it would have been to put it all on a hard drive. Yep. Yep. I'm just going to go on Amazon right now. I want to see what a 500 gigabyte hard drive costs right now. Well, yeah, a thumb drive, probably. Yeah, you can probably carry it in your wallet. Yep. Uh, $34.99. There you go. And the thing is, there are probably not even that many 500 gig drives anymore. I deal with hard drives non-stop we also deal with lto tapes for backups and a wide range at my company of raids and different things that we use as you know in servers but yeah it's hard okay so 36 dollars will get you an external 500 gigs 23.88 will get you an internal 500 gigabytes mm-hmm. so 
We've come a long way. Long way. A couple cups of coffee, a couple lattes will pay for that right now. And so we <laughs> went from the days of, you know, you bringing your box, your, your full computer yeah. tower over, and we thought we were slick because we plugged it into a TV, to a $1,300, 500 gigabyte hard drive. Yeah. We shot, there's 220 tapes that we filmed this movie on. We do have a redundant copy. So you have a copy and I have a copy. Yeah. I'm sort of nervous to put those in a player once again, but I do want to get everything backed up because we do have interviews that never got digitized. Yeah. Tons and tons of footage. Not all of it's great. <laughs> but, but now that we have the podcast, we have another outlet. You know, when you do a feature film, you're limited. So yes. you have to take 220 hours of footage and distill it down to 87 minutes. Yeah. With a podcast, we could ostensibly distribute 220 hours of content. Not that there's interest in that, but <laughs> the way that media has shifted has really been exciting. And this is like, we're going back to the old school with this new technology. And then today, it, just technically, because I've been sort of flirting with this idea quite a bit lately, because I did the motion graphics and I was not in my most skilled state at that point. Every time I watch the film, there's certain moments where I cringe and I'm like, I know I can make this better. This could be 3D now. There's so many different things we could do. And I go, oh, I didn't shoot that so great. <laughs> so now that you're a post-production veteran, mm -hmm. anything you do differently? A lot. <laughs> like what? No, I mean, on a post-production side, we did the best that we could, you know, because I think everybody is short-sighted about the past. We didn't have a lot of tools. Now, we had a million more tools while we were shooting than when we were in high school. And technology exponentially moves so quickly that in a way, like by the time we kind of finished shooting, we could have afforded like an HD camera because, you know, if anybody knows cameras, as an example, RED, RED Digital, the RED one came out in 2008. That's, you know, and right when I went to AFI, that was like, holy cow, this is unbelievable. We're like 2K, what is that? But once again, the technology was so new, there was literally no post-production workflow. It was a wild west. And that was a little bit too on the DV side, was like, how do you handle this? And how do we do that? And we learned how to put those all together. So, you know, looking back, I'm like, I don't know what other way we would have done it. You know, I still, there, there's a part of me that really wants to re-release the film in HD. Yeah. There's, there's software now that you can up-convert a standard definition mm -hmm. to HD. And our company's working on restoration jobs, too. If you watch our film, the film is SD. So the aspect is more square-like, but we put letter boxes in, yep. and we moved each frame to contain it. Yep. So we wanted that, that 16 sort of... 16 by 9 We wanted it feel. to look 16 by 9, but we didn't have the budget. Yeah. So that's how we created that. And I will say, I, in a way, that did save us for framing purposes. Because when you're running and gunning, well, you ain't going to get everything perfectly in the frame. And even today, we do that. Even shooting in 4K or 5K or things like that, depending on what you're shooting. You know, like our film Overrun, we shot um, anamorphic. So it's widescreen. But it's still pillar barred on Ultra HD. And even today, you can still shoot full frame and then mask it for the 240 and still have that, like we did, have that latitude to move your image up and down to kind of get the best framing. My last project, I directed a pilot and we shot it in 4K, but output it in HD. And using that, I was able to crop all kinds of different ways, which totally. was so much fun. 
But I do have a dream of up converting it to HD, redoing some of the graphics just a little cleaner, a little tighter. There is one typo in the film. I'm not going to say where. <laughs> I do want to fix that one. Because once you do these things, it's like making chocolate chip cookies. You have chocolate chips and flour and sugar and brown sugar and all the ingredients. And then you put it in the oven. Yeah. And once you bake those cookies, you're not going to be able to pull the, anything out of it. No. And at the time when we did the film, I mean, especially with you doing all of the graphics and stuff, it was way more complicated than that's like once you got the final product, you're like, Oh my God, how do I peel away the onion to go back to fix this one little thing? And I mean, I'm teaching students now how to make movies with their phone. Yeah. With a 4K phone, which is way more than four times better quality than SD. And even motion graphics and all of those. I mean, you can make a professional poster on your phone. You can do it on your phone. You can just get (laughs) templates that are already done and just tweak them a little bit. None of that stuff existed. Yes. So if there's an angel investor out there really interested in seeing a high definition copy of this film, give us a call. (laughs) And then I want to get back to Mr. Newton as we close this out. He was a huge mentor for both of us. Mm -hmm. I think you were there for every interview. Yes. Yep. And even the interviews in Colorado and around the country. That's right. We did stop in Colorado. So we, at one point, let's break it back down. So when you moved to Chicago, I drove with you. Yes. And along the way, we stopped in Colorado, and we yep. interviewed a veteran who had just come back from Iraq. Yeah, was a was a York alum. Yes, and he was was he a colonel? I can't remember, but he was pretty high ranking. But you too. didn't come with me to Arizona, right? No, I was there. But Newton wasn't. Yeah, yeah Newton was there. Yeah, I went with you. And with Joe V Hill too. Maybe that was the one I wasn't. I think there, there was an Arizona trip because there was like the southwestern one where he was. He had like the old West paintings behind him. Yeah, you were there for those. Yeah, I think it was something like that. I was there for one, and then the other, I didn't make it. Yes. Okay, so when, when you moved to Chicago, I drove with you to Chicago and flew back. Yep. And then we filmed for whatever, however many days we could. And do you remember in Colorado getting pizza? Remember we stumbled into... And somebody knew Newton? Yeah. Yes. yes. Remember that? What was it? It was a Chicago pizza place. It was the one that was like the farthest west... Oh, I don't remember which. It was which. like, what, like Grand Junction or something? Yeah, Grand Junction. And it was, I forget what pizza place it was. It was like Giordano's or something like that. Mm. And it was the farthest west. And I remember we going there and we had pizza. And we just mentioned that, yeah, we're from El- you know, Illinois. We're doing this documentary. And then we mentioned Mr. Newton. And the owner was there and said, I know who Mr. Newton was. I know who he is. I, I, I think he was like, I went to high school or something in the Chicago area. Yeah, it was like what, you know, Seb Coe talks about that in his interview, that like, no matter where you go, somebody's going to know that yeah, guy. it was crazy. <laughs> so my main question, first and foremost, is Noon was in, uh, he had a, uh, he could rub people the wrong way. Yeah. He could be salty to some mm-hmm. people and acerbic. And we talk a lot about Nick, that when he yells at Nick and mm-hmm. it was in the sample tape, which was like the first six minutes that was released. If you do look at Amazon at some of the comments, mm-hmm. there's a few Christian people that are like, he uses the Lord's name in vain, and this is a horrible movie. This man is no good because of that. So that was kind of 10 years ago. That was really the cultural response. Today, we have social media, and everybody mm-hmm. has a phone, and everybody has a camera on their phone. Well, and everybody has a public opinion. And so do you think Mr. Newton would be able to survive this cancel culture moment? That's a tough one. I think he would in certain aspects, but he would probably, as time would go, he'd probably have to tamper himself on certain aspects of what he did. But everything that he did, he did to motivate. 
And that was the key. And all of the kids knew that, even when you're getting yelled at in your face. But he knows that I can yell at this kid. But you know what? That kid, I can't yell at. But this kid, I got to yell at him in his face to get him going. But he loves it. He's built for that. So I think in this day and age, there are certain things that he could still do. But I think he would probably have to back off on certain things because you know, Mr. Newton was a, you know, old school kind of guy. And he, he did put it all out there on the table at times. And yeah, he used salty language. But you know what? All of that language that he used is on primetime TV now. So a lot of the language I think isn't as, as an issue, but some of his approaches would maybe be a little jumped on by people, especially in the last couple of years. Yeah, so it seems like there's a consensus that he probably w- would have been canceled by now. He but easily could have. None of the parents would have had it any other way. True. I think it also really speaks a lot to like masculinity today. Mm-hmm. We have this, like if you look at the insurrection that happened on January yes. 6th, 86% of the people arrested were men. Yes. And I look at all of those young men, those mostly young white men who went to that event, and I just immediately thought to myself, like, I don't think there's a lot of, like, father-son teams going to do that. So to me, what I saw was a lot of men who didn't have male mentors. Mm -hmm. And they've sort of surrendered to Donald Trump as, like, the alpha male who's kind of a cartoon TV version of the alpha male. Mm -hmm. Newton was the real deal, the real masculine man who who told you to step up and be a man. Yes. And that didn't mean be disrespectful to women. And it didn't mean demeaning people. You know, he was so about like, you don't demean people that maybe don't have your abilities. Newton's law is, it's nice to be great, but far greater to be nice. Yes. And I've lived my life by that for sure. And that mantra transcends all abilities, all genders, all parts of humanity. And I wrote a feature film script called Newton's Law. We need to get back to that. Yes. That's what really seems to be surfacing in all these conversations I've been having with people. And it really makes it clear that, like, I don't think Newton would be, I think that if you look at what's happening in District 205 right now. Yeah. I think I just sent you this open letter that's been going around because there's a parent or a group of parents who are trying to get The People's History of the United States, which is a book by Howard Zinn that I studied in college. Yes. And he's trying to get that banned. I studied that at my conservative Catholic university, and yet somehow it's not appropriate for a public school in 2021 in America. Yeah. And the the crazy thing is I realize most of our classmates now have children at that high school. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, and shout out to the York Girls Cross Country Team. Yes number one in state the boys got eighth the girls got first huge win for the girls and, and it's the an amazing soccer win. team also won yes state. and the soccer team won both of i mean i don't fantastic ever remember any time when we were in school that anybody won two when we, they won yeah, two state titles two, in one season yep two different sports winning yeah we didn't have that and like the demographics of elmhurst are changing they have like lacrosse now they mm-hmm. have the water polo team is on the on the it's a full team the soccer team is still a pretty powerful program the cross-country team still got a lot of legs in it yes and so newton who knows i think his legacy it's almost like his lifetime was perfect yeah and i agree i think like you know his tenure of what he did was was really the right time in history for him and there's no doubt he was he was on the tail end of that saltiness of people 
changing how they uh, perceived or how they felt they wanted things to be uh, or change, you know, and not necessarily change for the good just because they don't like a book or they don't like this or that. But yeah, I think it's true. Like right around now, he probably would have been canceled. There would have been parents that would not have understood what he's doing. And, and then there's parents that would have absolutely understood what he was doing. And even when we were in school and even over the past couple, you know, couple decades, there have been the sprinklings of, of parents that were upset with him, that did not understand what he was doing, mad that he was yelling at these kids. They thought he was berating these kids or, you know, abusing them or something. But... They most of them finally figured out what he was doing and how he was shaping these young men. And then the parents that really got it, they embraced it because he did shape them, you know, and made them into a better person and a more self-aware person. And that what that did, too, is they also had community. Yes. And as social media has unified the world, it has completely separated everyone. fractured everything. Where everybody is their own individual self, and every individual has to be treated with a certain amount of delicacy, Mm -hmm. where you can't teach white kids that these there was white supremacy that built a lot of these structures because that might make them feel uncomfortable. Well, these are the important conversations. History is not, you know, always clean. I'm a big history buff, and... People are very short-sighted about things, you know, and they have this aspect that they can't look at really the deep things that happened in our country or not just our country, but in our world and what certain countries and powers have done in this world. It's not peaches and cream, you know, and you have to understand the past to figure out why we're here or what's going on. It's disturbing that people don't want to teach the past. And we've had so much over the years of history being suppressed. And it's disturbing that people are trying to suppress history even more when we're starting to finally open up more conversations about what has happened in the past, what our country has done, certain demographics, things like that. That doesn't mean at all that you're un-American or anything like that. It's just looking at the facts of what happened. Those stories have been suppressed throughout history. And those stories are starting to emerge and trying to paint a different picture of certain aspects of our American history and our global history. And so what we know that worked with Newton was team, community, brotherhood. How did he say that he got to people? He said, "It's Matt, it's not about X's and O's. It's about tender, loving care. Yes. I treat each member of my team with tender, loving care. And that's what he did. Yeah. And it doesn't matter who you are. And, you know, matter. as you were doing your AFI, getting your graduate degree, I started going deeper into my yoga practice, became certified as a yoga teacher, and really went deep into those practices. One thing that I find really interesting, you know, there's the chakras mm-hmm. and the chakras each each chakra has a color associated to it the green color is the heart and newton was all heart mm-hmm. he taught people to love and he loved people and by loving people he got results on the course yes and you support them in that love and and that people can succeed is something that's missing i think we need more in-person connectivity for these men to have brotherhood 
they need to be rooting for each other and not just rooting to win over each other and、mm-hmm. not to beat each other, but actually to just be nice to、yeah. each other. And don't root against each other. It's nice、we're、to be all, great. Yeah. Far greater to be nice. And we need to just get more of that and less of all the polarity and the division. And it takes, you know, it takes a village for、it、that、sure、as、does. well. And we need male mentors, we need female mentors,、mm-hmm. we need co ed mentors, we need people to. Get back to loving each other. Yeah. And we need a diverse perspective of things. There's nothing wrong with that. And so, a few things that just came up you know, the, the sociologist watched the film and wrote this sort of essay that was sent to me. And she pointed out things that I didn't even realize that Newton was really, really inclusive way before this, you know, kind of woke ableist movement happened.、Mm-hmm. That was just a given. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember going to York and being in a public school. It, we had diversity of ability、mm-hmm. for sure. We had kids with learning disabilities, kids that were geniuses,、yep. kids that were super tall, super short, super good at football, super good at running. But that was what created the beauty was the colors of the fabric and、mm-hmm. not just the, the homogeny that comes with so much these days. Yeah, totally agree. So, Mr. Newton passed away on my birthday, which was a very, very disconcerting day, December 9th.、Mm-hmm. And, you know, it knocked us all out. It did. And there really wasn't a major sort of memorial. I think the, the events that came before it that he was able to attend, his 75th birthday party was a huge event.、Mm-hmm. And then his son threw an event at the school. Mm-hmm. And so he had these nice, sort of in person retirements, farewell parties. And then after he passed, how did it affect you? I mean, it, it definitely hit me hard. I mean, I think everyone prepared for that, you know, because Mr. Newton wasn't a young man, <laughs> he had had quite a life. But, you know, losing him, it, it was kind of like he's gone. I'm not, not going to be able to see him again. You know, when you go visit, you can't just stop by and say hi. And, you know, it, you know it's a hard thing to kind of think about and gr- really grasp when you have somebody that really mentored you when you're younger and really shaped your life. And then on top of it, you know, he brought. You and I were like back into the fold when we were shooting the movie. And that really, when I was, you know, working on the film, that was such an amazing feel that it was like I had never left. And I was just back on the team with them. And that really reconnected me again. And, you know, that was, it was an amazing experience to be with Mr. Newton like six days a week, like I was in high school. But, In a whole different aspect and a more personable aspect, being like behind the curtains more and being a part of him. And when he when he passed, I mean, you're always ready for that, but you don't want it to happen. And he would say the same thing as like, you got to keep going, you know, keep going, keep persevering, work hard. And all those things are still there for everyone that was around him. You know? He also spoke at my father's funeral right after I did. And this is the quote that I shared there that was from Emerson, but I think it really it aligns with both of those men. 
And Newton was not the most literary of, of gentlemen, but he did have all the right quotes. And he did quote Emerson quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And it says, to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the beauty in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know that one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. And like just listening just to that first interview with Newton, just hearing how young my voice sounds, but just to hear the curiosity and the connectivity that he started building between us. Just two random dudes probably, you know, had half an idea of which one was Brady and which one was me. And he just kind of nicknamed everyone and got away. But that was the beginning. And the questions that I was asking then about success and my understanding now as a man, almost 20 years later, about what success is, he answered it for me through his life, through his actions. And it had nothing to do with becoming a CEO or a doctor or a lawyer. It just became about living a good life where you love each other and you leave the world better than you got here. Completely. And if everyone can do that, then we're going to have a happy world. Yeah. It can be a good life for everyone. And so we just, everyone has to remember it's nice to be great, but far greater to be nice. And we can do this. Mm-hmm. So thanks again for coming over and, and sitting down and talking through all this. It's really been an honor to reflect back and talk about all this because nobody else was as intimately involved in this than you and I. Yeah, I mean, we experienced it together nonstop all the time. And it's been an amazing time to kind of reminisce and think about all these things. And, you know, a lot of these things, I'm sure like you, we we think about those all the time, but man, (laughs) it was not easy to get that movie done. It took us quite a number of years and we just, you know, got it done. Truly amazing, you know, because it was a pivotal time for both of us when we were doing that film. And not just doing the film and being around Mr. Newton, but just, you know, our age at that time and, you know, the time frame that we were doing that in. And the, the timing of the world, the planet, the people who were still alive at that time. Yeah, yeah. Just like you, I'm extremely proud of what we put together, you know. And I'm very proud that every year people do watch our film and grab all kinds of different things from it. And that really hits me. I think we captured something important for humanity and I'm grateful for having had this partnership, having had the opportunity to go as deep as we went and to be able to do this right now yeah. and to continue this long green line. Brady, thank you for coming over. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you everyone out there for listening. This is the Long Green Line podcast. Please like, review, subscribe, share this podcast with your friends, your coaches, your teammates and tune in next time. We're going to be talking with Ross Detman about the photography that was integrated in the film and his fatherhood of the twins. Check us out at longgreenlinemovie.com. Have a great day, everyone. I love what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing.